0: Sometimes we try to imagine what it was like to have been there that morning when they found the stone rolled away. Our songs try to express that. And it seems that when we get to the chorus or such that it has to speak of him, up from the grave he arose, we just feel like, that should be louder. That should have more excitement. And such like that. When we read in God's Word about that resurrection morning, there was an awful lot of disbelief running around. People who just couldn't fathom such a thing that one would rise from the dead. And I suppose it's still true in our day and age. We set this day aside. We mark it on our calendar. We we rejoice in it. And yet there are so many who do not believe, do not believe that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, that he did indeed rise from the dead, that he is alive today, there are many who do not believe that. This morning, as we spend time reflecting on the resurrection of Christ, I admit that I'm going to start with aiming at your head, and work down toward your heart. Because there are things in the record of his resurrection that are absolutely undeniably facts. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we're going to examine some of those here this morning. Evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Proof right from the text. Things that just have no other explanation, but that he indeed is risen. And we're going to look at four things, as far as evidence is concerned. We're going to talk about an empty tomb. We're going to talk about eyewitnesses, we're going to talk about changed lives, and we're going to talk about the accuracy of prophecy.
1: Four things of a
0: myriad of things that we could address, but I think if we all start together somewhere in Matthew chapter number 8, or 28 rather, there, there are lots of passages to go through this morning. And pretty much it's the last chapter of every gospel record. Mark chapter 16, uh, John chapter 20, right there, 20 and 21, uh, Luke chapter 24. They're all records, and I'm going to be all over the place. Uh, So either take really well-written notes or be ready to move a lot as we move. But these things stand before us. In Matthew chapter 28, It starts, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone away and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, here's the words, just as he said. Just as he said. Let's underscore that in our thinking here this morning. Just as he said. Then they said, come and see the place. But he was lying. The empty tomb. You know, that's central to the evidence that is presented before us here in this passage. An empty tomb. That Jesus Christ indeed risen from the dead. There is a theory that circulated some years ago, and maybe there are some who still hold to it. The idea that it was the wrong tomb. And in this theory of the wrong tomb, they have some interesting conclusions. But let's start with facts. Jesus Christ died. That's a fact. We have that recorded in Scripture. But that was a fact that Jesus Christ died. Matter of fact, it is the only purpose for crucifixion. Crucifixion was execution. It wasn't kind of crucify them and that would teach them a lesson. Crucifixion was never finished until the victim was dead. Jesus Christ was crucified. We have that record in the Gospels all the way through, and even the epistles bring it up often. But those who were in charge of crucifixion were the Romans, and they were experts at determining death. The gospel record has them going about in John chapter 19, checking to see if each of them had died. Remember, there were two thieves on the crosses beside him and Christ there. And the end of the day was coming, and they wanted to get off work. And they could not leave work until the task was finished. So they had to make sure. And they came to two of the thieves and had to break their legs in order to promote the speed of their death. But they came to Jesus and found he had died already. And just to make sure, one of the soldiers ran a spear up into his side. The Romans testified that he had died. Pilate testified that he had died as well. For when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to Pilate, of all people, to ask permission to have the body of Jesus, to have it buried, Pilate gave them permission. Why? Because Jesus had died. Pilate acknowledged that fact just in the simple act of giving permission to have him buried. And add to the simple fact that he was put into a tomb. He was buried. You don't generally bury people alive. He was dead. If he was alive, do you think they would have put him in there? I don't think so. They would have taken him home. Add to it a large stone, and not just a large stone, but guards outside of the stone. All set up to ensure the fact that Jesus Christ was dead, and that that would not be changed. He had to stay in that tomb. Now that's our evidence we start with, just the simple fact that Jesus was dead. And then there are those who say, well... How do you know they came to the right tomb? They might have come to the wrong tomb and found it just an empty tomb that, you know, didn't uh, have anything to do with Christ. That would suggest some interesting things. Like in chapter 28, verse number 1, when it says, Where the dawn broke the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Marys came to look at the wrong grave. Now you say, well, maybe they were mistaken. Well, back up chapter 27 for a minute. Chapter 27, in verse number 60, it says, after Joseph had cleaned the body, they laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. He rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there. Wasn't she? It says so. She was there, and the other Mary was there. They were sitting opposite the grave. Of course, it seems silly now to think that they came to the wrong tomb if they had been there when he was put in the tomb. They knew where it was. They said, one says, they came to the wrong tomb. If that's the case, by the way, in Romans chapter 8, 28, I mean, Romans, Matthew 28, verse number 4, the guards, the guards were guarding the wrong tomb. For the guards were there when the stone was rolled away. Now, that's an incredible thing, that these men would be standing at the wrong tomb for three days. The angel went to the wrong tomb. For the angel had gone there and sat upon the stone. Peter and John, when they heard the message, remember they went running to the tomb in order to see it? Could you believe they ran to the wrong tomb? Now, You say, well, obviously that can't be. It can't be the wrong tomb. Actually, the the angel said, he is is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was laying. They gave an invitation to look. Use your eyes. Take a look and see where he was. It was important for them to see where he was. The linen burial cloth was still there. The record is that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had wrapped his body. We wrap it somewhat like mummy style. They would wrap the body up in a single cloth and cover his face as well with a separate cloth. And here in that act, they would also put in a 100 pounds or more of spices as they wrap up a body as they prepare it for death. And that's exactly what they had done. When Peter came to the tomb in John chapter 20, he looked in that tomb and he saw the burial cloth lying there. Still lying there as it was. And the headpiece set off to the side. Leaving as if the body slid right out of that cocoon. I find that very interesting when you think about it. It's not torn. It's not tossed about. And if it was stolen, who would have left that part there and just taken a body? And how would they have gotten it out in the first place without upsetting the whole, the whole linen that was lying there? Add to it the weight of that body, whatever the weight was, add 100 pounds of spices, and try to steal that while there are guards watching Oh, by the way, don't they have to move a stone too? And then add to that another thing. If the disciples had stolen the body, why would they have gone back when the lady said, he's not there? Isn't that a little risky to do? To return to the crime, so to speak, if they had already taken the body? Here's some interesting evidences that set before us that seems rather, rather common in understanding Come see, the angel said. Look and see where he was laying. Another thing that sat next to the tomb is important as the evidence as well. There was a stone that was moved. A stone that was moved. The ladies worried about that as they were approaching the tomb that morning. Who's going to roll away the stone for us? Now that was not an easy thing to do. The stone was extremely large. Now, it could be rolled down to its spot, but to pick it up and move it back is very difficult because even in the construction of those things, they had a little trough that the stone would sit in, and it would roll down at an angle in order to fall into the spot. It would be an extra secure position because you couldn't just slide it out of the way. It had to go up in order to move it in the first place. And here this large stone is there, and they're wondering, how are they going to move it? Uh, Mark said something interesting in his record, Mark 16, verse 3. uh, The ladies wanted to know, who will move the stone up? The Greek text has that interesting little phrase in it. Who's going to move it up? And then John, when he records it, in John chapter 20, verse number 1, he says that the stone was, and these are the Greek words, picked up and carried away what an interesting choice of verbs to pick it up and to carry it away to the other side Now, there was another theory presented years ago that Jesus had swooned on the cross that he was he had just merely fainted it was exhaustion of course and and he had fainted and and they laid him in the tomb, and the coolness of the tomb revived him. Consider that for a minute. He had been beaten at least 39 times with whips. He had been up an entire night before the crucifixion without sleep. He was bleeding excessively from a crucifixion. He has been without food and water for three days. He's wrapped in a cloth and an extra hundred pounds of spices are wrapped on top of him. And so, those who said he swooned, he apparently came to have enough strength to get up, slide out of that linen cloth, and move a stone from the inside. It's just as ridiculous to suggest to you this morning that the disciples attacked and removed the guards from the location. They lifted up and removed the stone and stole the body. I give you those ideas this morning because, quite honestly, it takes more faith to believe these false theories than it does the record of Scripture. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and the stone was moved. And that's what the record says for us. That's the reality. The stone was not moved to let him out, the stone was moved so that we could see in. He was risen. He was risen. Matthew records it here in verse number 6. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was laying. So we have an empty tomb, and it stands there before you. Right now is evidence. Jesus Christ indeed rose from the dead. But let's add to it something that the court systems consider irrefutable. Eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to the fact. Now, in Jewish mentality, it only took two to condemn you. Two eyewitnesses to view something and say, yes, indeed, you're the one. Two witnesses to prove a point true or false. Two witnesses. According to scripture, Mary Magdalene came. Start adding in your head. How many do we have so far? One. Good. Then the women came, and I think there are about three others with her. You're about up to four. Peter came. And later in the day, he would see him. Five. Emmaus' disciples, there were two more. We're up to seven. The ten disciples who were locked in the room. Seventeen. Then the eleven disciples, when Thomas had joined them. We're up to twenty-eight. Seven disciples by the lake. John chapter 21. 35. 1 Corinthians 15 says, And over 500 believers. What is that number now? 535? Is that more than two to you? James, the half-brother of Jesus, add another one. We're closing in on 600 witnesses, and you say, okay, that's rather impressive, Pastor, 600 witnesses. But they're all loyal to him. Of course they're going to say that. These are, these are those who, you know, you'd expect them to say he's risen. But how about the quiet witnesses? You're here in Matthew 28. Look at verse 11, verse number 12. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. The guards knew it because they reported it. The chief priests, plural, they now knew it too. And when they had assembled with the elders, the elders now knew it. And consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Why did they have to fabricate a story? Because they had heard the truth. So even the silent witnesses, the guards, the chief priests, the elders of the community, they knew it too. They knew it too. There's a further evidence to add to that, and we're going to talk about changed lives in just one second. But in Acts chapter 2, while Peter was preaching about the resurrection of Christ, he's right there in Jerusalem, how easy it would be for them to walk around the corner, go up to the grave, pull out the body, and prove him wrong. Did they? No. They didn't even go over there. Why? Because they knew he was alive. They knew it. He was risen from the dead. Eyewitnesses. We have well over 600 of them accounting for the resurrection of Christ. Changed lives. Changed lives. How people can go from fear to faith. How they can go from those who who run and hide and deny to being martyrs. To be martyrs. In Acts chapter number two, this is Peter preaching, and I'll read you his words here. Acts two, twenty two and twenty-three and twenty-four. Oh, that's Romans. Acts two, twenty two, twenty three. Men of Israel, Peter says, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Watch his words, they're powerful. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in his power. This is Peter, who was hiding inside a locked room for fear of the Jews, standing before them and showing them, without any doubt and without any argument, that they are the ones who crucified Christ, but he is risen now. He attested to that right before them. Where was his fear now? What was it that changed his life so drastically? He had seen the risen Christ. He had talked with him. Now he proclaims him. Peter, who denied Christ before the crowd, now declares him as the one crucified and risen again. What boldness that is. You know, Peter could have been crucified himself. According to record, he was later. He was willing to become a martyr for this very purpose. When Stephen brought up these simple things, too, remember what they did? They stoned him to death. Now, either he was absolutely sure of the resurrection, or he had gone insane. There he stands before the multitude, declaring that which is his faith. It was not a lie. His testimony could have been disproved at any moment with the presentation of the body. Never happened. The life of all the disciples were changed forever. We have their records in history. They went out into the world and they preached a simple message. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he is both Lord and Christ. And they went about, each one of them, preaching that word in different countries, in different places. And according to the tradition we know, they suffered persecution for it. And many of them were martyred for their faith. It's hard to believe that somebody would die for a lie. Consider the last 2,000 years. And we give that number as a simple way of referencing the number of years that's gone between then and now. We've had the birth and history of the church. We've had multitudes who have put their faith in the resurrected Lord. We have missionaries that were sent all over this world. We have sermons being preached all over this world. We have lives being changed. And even your life has been changed by Jesus Christ. You are a testimony this morning. You are a life that's been changed forever because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. You could stand up among all those for 2,000 years who have said this too. Faith in Jesus Christ makes us a new creature in Him. We're changed from death into life. We're changed from darkness to light. We are a miracle of salvation. That's what He's done. We talk about, oh, He did all these great miracles. He, he gave the, the lame the ability to walk. He gave the blind the ability to see. He gave us life when we were dead. That's a miracle. You are a changed life because of Jesus Christ. That miracle. It's a miracle that we speak of here this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is seen in every single life that is changed from death to life. He is the first fruit. But we are the fruit of His work. We have the evidence of changed lives before us this morning. Can we doubt that? You can't very easily run across the sea right now and look in an empty tomb. I mean, you could, but not easily. And people say, well, this must be the place. And they marked one, didn't they? They said, this could be the place. We can't identify it dogmatically, but we say, okay, we'll go with that. Empty tomb. You can do that. You can probably talk about eyewitnesses, but they're not around anymore. That was 2,000 years ago. But it's hard to dispute a changed life. And that's what all of us carry with us who have faith in Jesus Christ. A changed life. How about the accuracy of God's word? I'm a firm believer that every word God has recorded is absolutely true. There's nothing on these pages that contradict. Nothing on these pages that are less than pure truth. And as we read these records, do you know how many times this resurrection was prophesied? It goes way back. And the reality comes to this. Either the Bible is true or it is not. You cannot believe both. The predictions of a resurrected life, the fact that there is life after death, started in our record all the way back to the days of Job. Job perhaps being the first record, I know you said, Genesis, Genesis, first book of the book. Yes, Genesis was written in 1440-some B.C. Job, probably before that. There's a good study on that. You have to come on Sunday nights to get it. But the book of Job could be the oldest book that we have in all of Scripture. And if you study the book of Job, it wasn't very far into chapter 14, verse 14, and he asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. He knew something was beyond this life. He said it again in John or Job chapter 19, verse 25. As for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And in the last, he will take his stand on the earth. The book of Psalms has so many verses here in Psalm 16:8 through 11 where it's recorded, I have set the Lord continually before me, because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. As the psalmist is writing these words, he's talking about something beyond the grave. Matter of fact, a very important passage because it's brought up several times in Scripture in reference to the resurrection. Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. That word Sheol is the grave. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He will receive me. Psalm 71, verse 20. Thou hast shown me many troubles and distresses. Thou will revive me again and will bring me up from the depths of the earth. The psalmist is sure of a resurrection. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe away tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of His people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Do we not look forward to that day when every tear shall be wiped away, every eye be made dry? It was prophesied in Scripture. We have it in Hosea. Of all places, Hosea thirteen fourteen. You didn't know this, maybe, but let me tell you. Shall I ransom them from the power of the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where's your thorns? O grave, where is your sting? Hosea said that. Almost 700 years before the resurrection of Christ. In the book of Acts, we've already seen part of Peter's sermon. It is full of scripture. He quotes from David at one point in Acts 2.25 through verse 32. He says, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for He's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. This is Psalm 16. And he's quoting it. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exulted, my flesh will also abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow the Holy One to undergo decay. This is what Peter was quoting. And then he came to this statement, in verse number 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He says, David wrote this and he died and they buried him. And you want to walk over to the cemetery with me? He's still there. Was David talking about himself? Peter says, no. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about someone else who would die, be buried, and rise again. And that was Peter's whole push on this sermon, because this is what he adds to this. He says in verse 30, And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would neither be abandoned to Hades, nor would his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, and we are all witnesses. That's his sermon. Either the Bible is true, or else it is not. You can't believe both. What did Jesus say about his resurrection? Was it true? Do you know how often he brought it up? Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. That sounds so religious, doesn't it? Show us a sign. You know what that said? We don't believe anything. Would you teach us something that we could believe? They were admitting their unbelief in the very act that they were trying to be religious. But they said, show us a sign. Show us a sign. And he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Boy, that said a lot. And yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says in just a few chapters later, Matthew sixteen twenty-one. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. In Matthew 17, verse 9, they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Boy, that must have had them scratching their head. What do you mean, risen from the dead? What does that imply? He must die first. Then he would rise. Again in Matthew seventeen, twenty-two and 23. While they were going together into Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew 20, verse 18, and verse number 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. But on the third day he will be raised up. How many times do you think Jesus brought it up as they walked along? I will rise again. I will rise again. I will rise again. You have the record in Matthew. And here, after he had been risen again, he said, I will go before you into Galilee. And the chief priests and the Pharisees knew that he meant it. Because the chief priest said to Pilate, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. Oh, they knew it. You can put the record of Mark 8.31, Mark 9.10, Mark 9.31, Mark 14.28, mark fourteen fifty eight mark ten verse thirty two luke chapter nine verse twenty two john chapter two nineteen through twenty two john chapter twelve verse thirty four john chapter fourteen verse two and three john chapter fourteen verse nineteen john chapter sixteen verse sixteen through twenty two on and on and on, we have the record that Jesus Christ declared His resurrection. Now, either what He said was true, or it was not. You cannot have both. What did the angel say here in Matthew 28? He is not here, for He is risen, just as He said. Just as He said. Come and see the place That he was lying. Now I sent before you this morning some evidences. I'm sure there's much more we could bring before you. But here are the records, folks. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ was buried. Placed in a tomb. Stone rolled in front of it. Guard set before it. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The guards knew it. The chief priests knew it. The elders knew it. The multitude that Peter preached to knew it. The disciples knew it. All these witnesses standing before you, that there was an empty tomb. Lives changed forever. From fear to faith. Boldness to declare the message, to take it throughout the whole earth. And proclaim the resurrected Lord. To see life changed in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Lives changed. Yours too. And then to go back and see. But this is exactly what God had said. It's been the record all the way through scripture.
1: That there is life
0: after death. And that life is possible because Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. We have these records before us. In the head, I hope, in the heart. Because these things were written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I ask you this morning, concerning your response to a simple message, what should we do? What should we do with such a thing? If the Holy Spirit's working in your heart and you just see these words, He is not here for He has risen just as He said. Come and see the place where He he was lying. If He brings you to understand this morning that Jesus Christ is God, that He did rise from the dead and that you must believe in Him, that's exactly what I hope that He's doing in your heart and soul. Bringing you to faith in Him. What did these folks do in Matthew 28? Look at verse number 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came, they took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. The very first response when they saw him. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now, this morning, you can easily be like a Roman guard. You know the facts. But you're willing to accept something else in its place. You could be like a chief priest. Chief priests, they had scripture. They had the record. They had the evidence that Christ was indeed risen, just as he said. And they chose not to believe it. You can be like one of the elders of Israel, who also knew it too. They had seen and heard. They watched Him. With a hard heart, they crucified Him. With a hard heart, they refused to acknowledge Him. And you could easily be just like that this morning, and harden your heart. Isaiah asked a very important question. When he was told to go forth with a message from God, he says, Who's going to believe our message? Who's going to believe our message? Who is, the, who is it that's going to see the power, the arm of the Lord? Who's going to know it? Romans chapter 10, there's an answer. Romans 10, verse 8 through 13, I'll read it to you and I pray that you listen. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. There is the same Lord as Lord of all of them, who abounds in riches to all who call upon Him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the response that Scripture calls for. That's the response that's before you today. Now, if I aimed at your head, I did for a while, because I was wanting to touch your heart. That's where belief lies. Do you? Do you believe this message? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is risen? Do you believe that through him you have eternal life? By faith? That's what we bring it to this morning. That's where I let you go before the throne as we go into prayer right now. And talk to the risen Lord about it. Could you join me, please? Lord Jesus Christ, we pray to you because you're alive. We know it's true. You have not only recorded it in your word, which we believe with all our hearts. You have given to us the evidences that we need that convince the mind. But Lord, you've also changed us forever through faith in you. Today we know and we serve a risen Lord. We rejoice in this and thank you for the great work that you have done. As we stand together in this place, testifying and rejoicing in this truth, testifying to what you have done for us, that we are now your children through faith in you. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. There might be some among us who need to hear this. Who might, this very moment, receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's your work, Lord. That's a miracle that you accomplish. And you're the one who applies it to the heart and life and change them forever. Just as you've done it for us, we pray you do it for them. May they come and see the place where the Lord was laying. May they acknowledge he's not here, for he has risen just as he said. Thank you for the truth and for the work that you've done to change us. We praise you today. We rejoice in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.